0: Welcome back to the program. It's one of the tragic ironies of the psychoanalytic age that that which attracts us to people, particularly our partners, often turns out to be the very thing that begins to repel us later in life. First, it's those endearing habits that now become annoying. Then it's the annoyance of their larger worldview. Perhaps it's because in partnering, we seek to make up for all of those things that we're lacking. Perhaps it's because we buy into the old adage that opposites attract, even though today contemporary research shows us that it's simply not true, that partners that are similar tend to do better. Today we seek and talk of authenticity, but is it possible to be authentic while trying to compromise with anyone that's the opposite of who we are? Those are some of the central ideas running through Alexandra Fuller's third memoir, Leaving Before the Rains Come. Alexandra Fuller is the best-selling author of Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight and Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness. It is my pleasure to welcome Alexandra Fuller back to this program to talk about leaving before the rains come. Alexandra, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jess.
0: Delight to have you here. This is your third memoir, and uh, you're not that old Alexandra.
1: (laughs) I know. Isn't it awful? When people ask, You know, you sort of sit on the plane and it comes around to, what do you do? I I just sort of, you know, mutter that I I write. Um, And then they say, well, what do you write? And I, you know, really just sort of ask for someone to pass the peanuts. You can't really explain. And, you know, actually, I think it's four memoirs, technically, because the the book that everyone forgets about Scribbling the Cat, Right. Um, which was the second book I wrote, and I went back into Mozambique with a soldier from the war that I grew up in. That had a lot more of me in it, even than than the first two books. Which and The reason I know that is my mother absolutely hated Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight and um, Cocktail Hour, and she loved Scrubbing the Cat. She said, that book makes you sound as crazy as you made me sound in the first book.
0: Talk a little bit about this idea of reliving these experiences through mm. these memoirs and really what the totality of this has taught you because one has to believe that the experience of writing each of these memoirs has kind of built on the other and it's taught you more about who you are and infused the the subsequent books.
1: Oh, it, you know, it's so true and I think what's difficult is that when you're sitting here now today, I feel as if I can't even imagine being the woman who I wrote about, and I can barely imagine being the woman who wrote the book, because mm-hmm. the act of writing is so transformative, and it's not just the, the words on the page that, you know, has something to do with it, but it's getting to the words on the page, and the older I get, the, the more that, you know, and I am in my mid, late 40s now, you might even say, so I... You know, but I think Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. I was young. The experience was very fresh to me. It was of my childhood. There's a very sort of playful voice in that book. Um, and I'm writing about such a colorful character. I mean, my mother, whom I adore, and that I think really holds up in the pages. And I'm writing about a very difficult time, the Civil War in Rhodesia, in which my white parents, chose to fight to keep the country white run. So there's this just huge innate tension because I, as their daughter, grew up to believe that that had been a completely immoral position. Um, You know, and then you've got the added complexity of the fact that once majority rule came to Zimbabwe, the leader has been the, you know, hideous dictator, Robert Mugabe. So all of that sort of holds this kind of story, you know, even, even without being an incredibly skilled storyteller. But the older you get, I think you get more and more spare in your words. And a lot of that has to do with, I think it's really incumbent on a memoirist or someone who's writing about themselves to take the journey to the interior, as Charles Wright would have it, um, and come back with what they found and then remove the private from that. Um, Because in my view, the private is what you need. You know, I was telling a South African friend of mine was staying with me. He's a sort of big, tough war correspondent um, who's been shot everywhere in you know, Soweto and Afghanistan and shot in the shoulder and, you know, gone through goodness knows what. And I'm sort of, sort of telling him something private, and he puts up his hand in the sort of very South African way and said, you know, just save it for the shrink, keep it fresh. And I think that that's been such a great lesson in my writing as a memoirist, that you don't bring your private stuff to the table.
0: It's interesting that in some ways, as a writer, there is this public voice that you are putting out there, but it's uh-huh. really at the same time a very private voice, and there's an interesting juxtaposition between the two.
1: Yeah, I mean, I right, I think this is the really tricky territory, because for me, I think there's a big difference between private and personal, and I think the personal tends to be universal, it tends to be political, it tends to be... I think that really is something that, you know, I use in my writing for sure. It's it's my, you know, it's my canvas. Um, But the private has to remain private. And I, I mean, this question often comes up because obviously one of the things about memoir is that other people with whom you've had the privilege of intimacy are in your work. And I think you really have to draw the line between what's private, what does stay off the page, what's personal and therefore universal and therefore okay to put on the page. And particularly in this book, you know, I'm protecting my children who are the most sacred beings to me on the earth. And then their father, who, you know, because he's the other half of the person who, you know, takes care of them and he's half of them. I mean, it's absolutely incumbent that he be protected. So he's very much, both he and and the children are a placeholder with this book. This book is about me and about my journey toward The possession of voice and mind.
0: Talk a little bit about that process and the decisions that you had to make along the way about what you would talk about, particularly with respect to your ex-husband and and the degree to which it was the story of, of a marriage, the story of both of you, and that it also was and is primarily your story and trying to find that balance.
1: Well, right. So everything in the world exists in relationship. I mean, you can't pretend that you were in a marriage with someone else, which makes, I think, writing about divorce incredibly tricky. But the, what I found when I was kind of when I realized that my marriage is ending, and I'm a writer and I'm a reader, so I read and I write my way um, out of situations and into situations, and I just couldn't find a book that reflected what it is to be a mature woman with children and work in this long relationship, but what divorce looked like, you know, for that person. And there was a recently um, an, an argument that said when young men used to want to go and find themselves, they went on a journey. You know, they traveled out to the, to the east. They went to the, to the mysticism of India. They, or they went west. And I think a lot of our literature reflects a sort of male, a female, you know, version of that male journey where you have women, explore, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strait, both mm. of whom I admire enormously. But their journeys are so much the journey of a single woman. I, in a funny sort of way, we're tracing that very male way of finding self. As a mother with three children, and a job in your 40s, you don't have the luxury of that. I mean, I think that's much more still the luxury of men. Ironically, my um, ex-husband just came back from the base of Everest, and I sort of teased him he was doing his eat, pray, love. <laughs> and, you know, but women tend to be, you know, you're at home, you're still doing the laundry. There's still very much, I think, um, this way in which, the ex- you know, this becomes a very inward personal exploration.
0: To what extent is so much of this shaped by your own experience as a child in in the mm. chaos of of Rhodesia and and what you saw then?
1: I'm such a good question, right? I mean, I think there needs to be some sort of statute of limitations on how long you can blame your you know, your parents and your church and your country and your government for, for how you turn out. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that's sort of somewhere in your twenties, you've got to start whining about it. But you're nonetheless indelibly shaped. And I think the thing that my childhood taught me was that there, um, you know, chaos is the natural order, and that the paradigm that people sort of thought was a kind of American pragmatism—that you can somehow shore yourself up with insurance and a bank account and a mortgage and a, and all this stuff. And that, that proved to be not only false, but a horrendous massive lie in 2008 that the whole country had been lied to. I've got, you know, certainly if anyone who knew what was going on the government had been lying. And, I mean, it was a sort of criminal lie. And, you know, at that point, I sort of looked at my husband and went, well, you know, the Zambian way of stuffing Monday under, under your mattress doesn't seem so crazy after all. <laughs> I mean, in other words, I'd been raised to believe that the world Um, that I wasn't exceptional in the world, that I wasn't just by the fact of being born worthy of protection, even though being white in Rhodesia automatically gave me those rights, which were not granted to the 6 million blacks. Um, But it all proved to be a complete and utter disastrous lie, you know, when I was 11 years old. So I think that really it was not so much an emotional schooling, but really a very physical, political schooling I had growing up. And that, that quest
0: for safety as a result of that kind of upbringing and that kind of experience is in many ways, as you write about it, what led you to your marriage?
1: And I think it's not uncommon. I think I just had, I mean, the great thing about writing this book is that I get to write the experience on steroids of what really we're all after, which is this myth that marriage is sanctuary, that, you know, movies end (laughs) with the beginning of what's about to get really tough. Um, The falling in love bit is, I think, really reflexive. And I think that you, I mean, I describe the the way in the book that we all come up with one sentence that tries to explain why we ended up with the person we did and not with everybody else. And, And for me, I said, he looked good on a horse. That was good enough. But he also represented adventure with safety, uh, you know, instead of like this sort of chaotic, um, non-stop misadventure of my life, he would go on a seven-day whitewater rafting trip or two weeks in the mountains or whatever, and at the end of it, he gets picked up and taken home, and there's a hot shower, and you can switch adventure on and off, and that to me seemed very safe, and it proved, of course, to be complete falsehood.
0: What was it about it that was false? When did you begin to know there was something about it that, that was not authentic for you?
1: I mean, look, it took me a long time because I was very—I was 23 when I got married—and I think we have to work our way into what authenticity looks like. And even that, you know, it's, I think if my, my son asked me the other day, two most important qualities um, are in, say, a partner or a friend or myself, and I said authenticity and a sense of humour. And he said, "Well, describe authenticity," and I said, "It's bedrock." Um, so it's a really difficult thing to say, you know, what your own reactions are, or what you're searching for, because I think so much of, you know, how we are and who we are is in reaction to our upbringings, and and I think we're also in reaction to our fathers and our foremothers and our forefathers. You know, in my case, I was the first woman to sort of finally take off the apron and say enough, basta. Um, and so it really was this. I married this very um, adventurous, uh, kind of worldly river guide, and we came to the States and he kind of fell into that needing to make um, a living and became a realtor. And and what it removed from me was my agency in that and the culture of our relationship. I don't have anything against realtors, (laughs) but it wasn't authentic to me or it didn't seem authentic to him that that's, how we conduct our lives. Um, you know. I said to him at one point, look, I, we can live in a hut or a teepee. We can figure this out. I too can, will be providing for the family. And then that even bigger myth that absorbs so many women in this country, which is that you can have it all. You can have children. We had three. You can have a job. You know, I've had a career as a writer for a, a long time. Um, you know, you can have a marriage. What that really is code for is, P.S., you'll be doing it all." <laughs> And it's exhausting.
0: Had you not come to the States, how might it have been different?
1: You know, I just can't know. Um, I, listen, what's terrifying is I seem to be turning into my mother, even though I don't live in Zambia, <laughs> uh, with her as a direct role model. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I, I'm having a very odd experience right now being on book tour and having myself reflected back in me in interviews and articles and so on. And good lord I sound like her. Um sort of irreverent and, and uh my internal editor seems to have taken a perpetual sabbatical and um you know sort of outspoken and I think I probably would have I you know, who knows, I I may have gotten to this point quicker. Is less standing between you. You know the, one of the things i is very striking to me about this country is how much self-censorship there is. How careful we are, mm-hmm. um, n- not to put ourselves up for for judgment. And I think it's because we're so busy judging each other um, all the time ourselves. In the land of the free and the brave, you know, very few of us have the courage to be both.
0: Because you've spent so much time reflecting on your own past and and the the impact that it's had, the results that it's had in shaping you, how does that make you look at your children and their upbringing and how it might shape and and mold them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that um, terrified me was how much unconscious information we are receiving all the time um, in this country. And I've written somewhere in this book that, you know, unless you really dig down to the bedrock of who you are, in a culture like this, you're very much in danger of ending up being a black dot on somebody else's bottom line. That it really is about being sold an idea of your not having enough, and you'll have enough if you... Yeah, we've heard this over and over again, right? This isn't a novel idea right. at all, but it felt very real to me. I'm terrifyingly real when I got here because I was coming from such a different culture. I was coming out of socialism where there was sort of no, I mean, the absolute opposite was happening, right? There was no freedom of commerce and no one was trying to sell you anything. Um, If you wanted to purchase something, they, you know, say it was oil that week, they dyed your finger black so you couldn't buy more. I mean, it was the opposite of a consumer culture. with an anti-consumer culture. And I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other, but to bring children up where you know they're little sponges and they're receiving so much of this message that you're not enough, you're not enough, and knowing how damaging that was. Um, as a woman in, in, you know, Southern Africa, um the very first rule was I would never allow television in the house ever, and I ended up raising my children in a lot of the ways in which my parents did. there were a lot of books, a lot of dogs, as many animals as I could stuff into a house <laughs> um and a lot of time just to be not so much having to do and I think that 's one of the things that I was find terrifying here is very few people um are even capable of very strong self-respect you know, work um we're self-absorbed without being very self-aware
0: alexandra fuller her new memoir is leaving before the rains come alexandra i thank you so much for spending time with us today
1: Jeff, yes, it was so kind of you um i'm brave of you to have me back thank you
0: <laughs> always a pleasure thank you so much